Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, podcast that looks at academic texts regarding tabletop games under our own unique lenses. Hi, everyone. It's been a while, hasn't it? It I think it's... Yeah, it's been a while. It's because it's... So much happens on the RPG discourse that I've I've learned to despair of the word discourse. <laughs> I like to I think really it's because we we enjoy doing it so this podcast so much that we miss it in between. So it always feels like just a, an eternity between episodes. Well, to be perfectly frank about it, it's largely because I think, I think that I'd rather talk to people who try to make sense rather than people who just give me hot takes like flapjacks. Yeah. You know, like, let's actually talk about this. And then I think, you know, you can actually correct yourself in real time rather than, uh, rather than wait for several angry retweets. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, our opening intro question, of course, is what was your Halloween costume? It being the day after Halloween. Today is Halloween for. Oh, yeah, it's, Jared. it's still Halloween for... So this for, is a very spooky episode. Yeah, yeah, oh indeed. my god, I live in the future, okay? It's, it's November here. <laughs> how, the, how the hell is it November? This was what, what, what I did when I woke up this morning. Well, my Halloween costume is um, ju- just, uh, just me. I just went as me for Halloween, which is, when you think about it, the spookiest thing I could do. And Fiona, how about you? Uh, I wore cat ears, which technically I think people thought I was going as a cat. And I explained, I'm going as a cis woman, and therefore this is an acceptable costume. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's very funny, even though it isn't. (laughs) Well, depends, right? I mean, (laughs) for many people, a white cis woman is a thing of fear and scariness. I mean... They, yeah. I Just mean, like a cat. Yeah. I mean, did, I mean, did you have tears to complete the costume? No, I don't cry. Oh my god, my <laughs> That's for lesser beings that are weak. Yeah, but you know, like, what makes a cis woman scary is because, you know, weaponized... Never mind. Okay, fine. Ugh. Okay, and as for me, my name's Mahar. <laughs> and I went as a... A Wednesday, Adams, who was happy to drink again after giving birth. <laughs> that oh, yeah. is it. Yeah, yeah. So here we are in episode two of season two, where we've been reading the book, The Elusive Chef by John Peterson, as published by MIT Press. And yeah, I think it's been a fairly good read so far. Um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I think, been... I think this episode we're doing... What's our topic? The role of the GM, something like that? The role of the referee? Yeah, exactly. I guess, you Um, know, like, before we begin, I guess our question is, like, are you two, like, for example, what I call career GMs in the sense that oftentimes you're the one in your group who's always running the game? I've ended up in that place recently, although I still play in a few, a handful of games, one of which Fiona GMs. But yeah, I do. I do GM. I have a regular group that I GM. I... I I steadfastly end up oscillating wildly. Like there was a while where I was like playing in a lot of games and not running anything. And, you know, I think currently I'm 
only running one game, which Jared is in, and I'm playing in a couple. Um, but historically, I've basically been the GM because I'm the only person that owns RPG books, and I'm trying to convince people to try this new thing that is totally cool and going to be an awesome way to spend your time. <laughs> On my end. Yeah, I tend to be the GM in my group. I actually, like, Fiona, this might be terrifying. The last time I was a player was probably with you. And that's been a hot second. That was, yeah, that was us playing uh, Traika Hearts, which I need to finish. <laughs> I mean, you need to finish because also I, run again. <laughs> I need my unicorn back. I need my evil unicorn back. I need my fulminist unicorn back. <laughs> no, the reason why I ask is because the tension of, of uh, this particular chapter, this particular section, not that we're discussing by sections, but this particular theme is that um, it's really about what the referee is supposed to do and people like having this ongoing argument of what exactly is the role of a referee and ultimately what does it mean to adjudicate the actions and the dice in a game and whether or not there are tensions there. And for me, on my end, the reason why I bring this up is largely because we are entering a time where some would argue that the role of the referee is passe. Ergo, you have like self-journaling games, personal games, right? Or you have collaborative games. But at the same breath, we are also realizing that, hey, this is not... It's merely executions of a question that we have um, maybe innovative answers. But the question itself is not is not new, which is why do you need a GM in the first place? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question to look at um, historically, the way this the way this book obviously is doing. Um, and I think it does a good job because there's like, there is a section of the book that deals with this directly, but um, it's kind of, the book is kind of shot through with this particular issue. And I think it's interesting because it touches on a lot of stuff, you know, you see it, um, you see it come up with the early wargaming stuff. So, you, you know, you, you see the name corns a lot and you see, um, like, I don't know if the book actually calls out Donald Featherstone, but like the, the really the, the free creek spiel, right. The, the, the big pillars of, uh, refereed war games. And being that that's where like the whole concept of the referee comes from, for RPGs. Um, it's interesting to hear like how those issues both already existed in war games and also were transformed by the transition into RPGs more specifically. I mean, I found it crazy that part of that transition included the fact that you even had to ask who rolled the dice. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are part, it's like, Oh my God, only the referee rolled the dice. To yeah, me, and that's heresy. like a big, that was a big thing. And I think to some degree it still is. And I think it's interesting because, um, you know, the, the book says this specifically that the, that OD&D itself is very, not only unclear, but like inconsistent about who rolls dice when, you know, so you get into issues of like, you know, a stealth roll or something, or I don't know what the actual example was, uh, listening at a door. Like, should the player roll that? It's like, well, there's there's reason why you might not <laughs> have the player roll that, because maybe they don't know, right? If they 
listened well or not. And so they don't get that extra information of like, oh, I failed this role. And so there's, there's like this immersion argument that comes up over and over again. Um, I've got a, I've got a little quote here, here, I found it. The quote is, oh, and it's really, it's, it's a perfect little pull quote here. Quote, why keep it a secret? We might presume that it is for the sake of isolating players into the situation of their characters. Gygax did not want them to participate in the quantified determination of how successful their hits are and thus how close to defeat an adversary might be. Right. So there's this. It's interesting to me because it's an immersion argument that implies a tension between like immersion and the system. Right. There's this implication that wrestling with integers is at odds with whatever they construed role play as you know that's really that's really fun i mean like <laughs> it, it it kind of like lionizes the dm not only to be like the bearer of challenge but also to be the i guess the gateway to information yeah it's like um it's like a the the gm protects the players from the dirty systems stuff so they don't they don't have to lose immersion you know what i mean like that's kind of the attitude but here's the funny thing, right? I mean, like, and this might, this is a realization realization that just came in. Doesn't this also imply that the GM often then means will be the person with the most economic willingness to invest in the game? Because you need all as the far extra... As buying books, you mean? Yeah, buying books, buying dice, buying whatever, right? It, it yeah. almost argues, like, if you're the GM you're probably the person who's willing and able to spend on all these extra resources. Yeah. It's interesting because like, I'd imagine coming out of war games as a lot of players were at the time, the investment required to be, even if we put all of the financial onus of RPGs on one person, the GM, that financial burden is nowhere near what it would be to like, have a sand table in your basement, you know, to play war games on. So I'm sure it didn't seem like a big deal <laughs> at the time, but it is interesting looking back how sort of lopsided it looks in retrospect. Well, and I think that's also one of the interesting transitions and tensions that um, will be my unique contribution for the evening of, um, you know, Although this is jumping much uh, later, there's a bit where talking about um, Arneson differentiating RPGs from war games says that, uh, uh, you know, RPG is, I feel, a game where the individual character can enhance his abilities and station within the game through the characters used in play. And that, you know, Arneson considered... Many so-called RPGs only pay lip service to it by including characters that can never develop but are always the same. That's not an RPG. That's not RPG in my book, which is interesting because that's you know book ended with a thing where someone complains about experience points. But I think of that right as part of this emerging field right from war games where you are an individual. Your individual changes in certain ways, right? Like you're gaining levels or items or relations or what have you and yet 
all of the things that I associate with contemporary D&D are really not in the OD&D core book. Mm. Like, there's not pick lists, right? Like, you you don't get much by gaining a level. Like, in earlier things, your to-hit bonus is modified. You maybe gain a spell. You get some HP. Yeah, you get some HP, and, like, your title changes. And also, there's a question of whether or not your level can even go up anymore. Yeah, and it's that's especially interesting because, and I, I didn't pull a quote for this, but there's a section of the book where... Um, they specifically, like, they, they quote someone as saying, like, yo, this is a role-playing game, and you've got this character that has stuff about them, and you need to play to that and make, um, quote-unquote, suboptimal decisions. And, like, that seems perfectly obvious. But for me, looking back at OD&D, that's kind of not perfectly obvious. Like, there's not... When you make an OD&D character, you don't get, like you know, uh, lost his left hand in the war, you know, as part of your character, uh, creation process. But that is, there's, there was something like really speaking to a lot of players at the time as something to really play toward. And I find that really, I don't know, really interesting and difficult to really put my finger on. Well, it's just intriguing that at the end of the day, it's almost like a question of agency, right? You really have to start asking questions like, you know, having a DM almost becomes a question of how much agency a player should have. And it becomes really hard because there's this section here uh, over in uh, page 41 where the Cambridge University student Sandy Eisen described in the beginning of 1975 his own introduction to D&D. And I found the first few games intensely enjoyable and exciting. I really lived the part, and my willing suspension of disbelief found myself there in the dungeon. Uh, But then he goes on to continue later on that my actions, and of course my thoughts about these actions, were dictated by real-life considerations, and no thought of wargame mechanics entered my head to distract me from the events going on. But for him, eventually, learning the game system was a source of acute disappointment. Inevitably, when you're aware of the rules... You play out each situation with an eye to obtaining best odds slash chances for survival, etc. Considering the rules rather than the situation that you're in. So, in fact, Eisen felt that it impaired his experience of the game so much that he vowed, To avoid this, I have decided that when I design and run my own dungeon, I will not permit the player, people who do not know about D&D yet, to discover the rules. So could you imagine that it's like, it really, it really has become where a question of, hmm, system versus story. And I was kind of like, you know, like because apparently your stats are supposed to determine your suboptimal choices. But then the point is you have an idea what is optimal within said stats because the stats quantify things. So I'm just kind of like, uh-oh, doesn't this sound familiar again? <laughs> well, it's like, uh, here we go. <laughs> It, it feels so familiar because the one thing that I think the elusive shift is a distant near to throw in a Barbara Tuckman reference, but also like a very close one, right? Is that like none of these arguments were resolved because I think that these arguments define what an RPG is. Hmm. 
that is like, I'm not saying that there aren't better or worse positions or that I don't have my own personal positions or whatever, but you know, it's like when we're going through the elusive shift and you know, we're a thing I'm struck by and it's not really spelled out in the text. And maybe this is a bit of spitballing, right? Is there's no clear rules for how you do anything that involves sitting at the table besides what, like, you know, the actual sort of backend math is, right? Like, I, I could double check that, but, like, I, I have the OD&D books, you know? Like, I've, I've played second and BX edition, you know? Like, there's not... Um a ton of consideration that, you know, I think people think of as now normative of like, how do you run a session? Yeah. And most of the book is, is pretty, it it hammers home a couple of times that like most of the actual, you know, minute to minute at the table stuff that you really do need to know to play a game of D and D only exists in the extended example of play, like the narrative of play that they included in the book. So there's a lot that has to be kind of divine from that. And even that, to my to my knowledge, doesn't really deal with much interpersonal stuff. You know, it's more like uh, when do you ask for a role and like those kinds of things. And like, yeah. So, yeah, it just doesn't deal with it. And, you know, but I think also of like all of these early arguments, right? Because like this book kind of, you know, covers the like zine culture of the era and it feels like so many of those people are dms responding to dms and in some ways like with the idea of a dm who doesn't or gm or referee or whichever term right like doesn't really teach you the rules but like tells you the situation and has you do the role playing so that they can do the back end rolling is like so alien to us right but like that's also to some degree how a lot of game teaching runs now right like in a weird way like a lot of what i'd call story game mechanics are actually you know in a lot of ways hey you have this die heuristic develop a rule in play because everyone agrees it works is just throwing that to the group rather than an individual yeah and i'll i'll be like i'll I'll be the vulnerable one here and i'll i'll say that over time i have been like as a gm i have been gravitating like i'm not fully there but i've been gravitating very much toward this like players don't need to worry about system uh kind of style um of gming and it, it works for me insofar as it does, it works for me because the assumptions are like, you know, they're, they're the the same assumptions of like living in the world, right? Physics is the same. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like you, you have a general idea of like, it's really hard to jump across a 15 foot gap, you know, Um, those kinds of things. And so a lot of our, our assumptions carry over. And so we don't really need to bring, like, we don't need to say integers at each other about it necessarily. And so I've been definitely moving in that direction. And I didn't realize how baked in, I guess for a long time, I didn't realize how baked in it was to early D&D to do that. 
Um, and I've been using the phrase like black box play. The idea being like, you know, player statements are input. And then I just am a black box that outputs results kind of deal, which is a joke to be clear. But um, like, yeah, I've, I, I've, I've definitely had some success with a measure of this kind of attitude. Well, you know, I mean, like, I agree. I mean, personally, it's why I like systems like Powered by the Apocalypse, the idea that I don't have to rule anything if I'm the GM. It's just a matter of like, hey, you roll your dice. Oh, let's figure things out, right? Like, the idea of I don't have to worry about my own dice is pleasant. Uh, but conversely, I think it's also quite important to understand that players like to design and quantify what they can do. And sometimes having too much freedom is also an issue. So, like, uh, what are you going to do? And then you have, like, it's either you have so many abilities that you don't know what to choose. Or, conversely, you don't have anything. You don't even know what you can do. So you're left wondering with this, like, awful sense of helplessness. Right? Like, analysis yeah, paralysis. paralysis. Yeah, right? 100%, and so, yeah. and I think, And I think that's why some people also do appreciate like more structured games for lack of a better term like D&D because then you know exactly like at first level I can do this at second level I can do this if yeah, I want like to be 4E where literally you just have a, a like a, a HUD of mm-hmm. abilities and you just press the button and yeah, then it's on which a is, cooldown you know which is fantastic but what I yeah. think is problematic right now I mean like relating it to current practice and I don't want to use the word discourse okay because that that tends to be I think like it just tends to be get like overused in 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 the, in the incorrect sense. But I think yeah. like looking at looking at um, current practice, what's happening is right now. I think people are arguing over, and we've gone over this before because we even laughingly like have our like system matters, blah blah blah, whatever stuff, right? But I think the the big argument that people are really having these days is that what preserves a sense of collaboration and agency and when should creativity in that pursuit of agency be edited and that's what i think where people get a little bit like uh, well you know i my, my free will but then it's also like yeah but part of free will is the freedom to enjoy consequences they have to come from somewhere right but then the dm's not supposed to do that so i guess what i'm driving at here and what i'm driving at from the book is that I, I agree with Fiona. It's like the, because the arguments are unresolved, and I don't think we are we should even be in the business of resolving the argument, so to speak, with upon more reflection, because you know how you want to go about playing is really up to you. I think we need to avoid being didactic in how games are approached. And I think that's what's happening these days. And it's and I think it's because people are being didactic that you're getting all these arguments. And therefore, a lack of resolution in entirely. Mahar, People, I am yeah. so in, 100% in agreement. There. That is a beautiful like, thing that you've said. And like, I, I, yeah. I do want to like extend that argument out a little bit as an, like, as an editor, <laughs> as a person who routinely reads manuscripts and advises people on how to change them. I, I think that didacticism, that, the, those didactics that you're pointing to, have a tendency to creep into manuscripts. And so you get a lot of a lot of books that get published that have really strong opinions about this kind of thing. And it's like, I get it. I do. I totally understand why the impulse. But also this is like this is such a very particular thing from table to table. And I think maintaining flexibility is like 
it probably needs to be a really high priority or at least thoroughly considered, you know? Well, I mean, like, on one hand, oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to be saying this. <laughs> on one hand, I do agree with Barthes that, like, yeah, the author is effing dead, right? Like, mm-hmm. who cares? The author is dead. Deal with it. I mean, on, I, think that should, I think that should apply to rules, to games rules. Um, I think game rules should be looked at that at that level. But it should not be done according to game and setting designs, if that makes any sense. In the yeah. sense that, like, um, if someone's going to do a, say, like, Asian-inspired something which reflects the Asian heritage, don't freaking make the author die. Because then you, if you say, oh, well, they're Asian, this doesn't matter at all whatsoever. I'm like, bitch, it does. You know? You can't, <laughs> like, you can't well, do that. But I think in terms of toolkits, perhaps the author should die. And then you should just, like, go, oh, well, whatever. Like, let it be their own personal interactivity with the text. And then you recognize the text for what it is. And also, friends, when I mean text, I don't mean the words in a book. Okay? I mean it as a, as a product of a culture and of a mind that is now trying to engage with other minds. Just putting it out there. Let's be correct with how we use terms. Oh, we're just going to do etymology and clarification solve this episode. Awesome. I'm so excited because I'm very on board with a lot of this. And I think that maybe this is the interesting thing that both doesn't happen in this book and is in this conversation, but also is something that whatever I think is worth bringing up of the book talks about, you know, relations between DMs and players, and also, like, a lot about, you know, who wrote early zine culture, and the thing that I miss, and I realize it's for another book, and I think that this book is great, right, is the sense of what it was like to actually come in and be onboarded into playing in the era, right? Like, um, the sort of way that it must like, right, like the book describes generational gaps, right, of like the main popularization of the game and then much younger players coming in who are totally different than the people who are running them. You know, and I think um, that sort of like is an element that I want because I understand what that's like in a bunch of different ways right now. And it's simultaneously the thing that I think would give me so much more clarity on how I think about these positions as they emerged historically. And I also think that's like almost impossible to get, which which is its own thing. Um, Yeah. I I think it's also interesting, like the, the book kind of acknowledges the intractability of this and the centrality of it. Um, There's a quote on page 61 where um, he's uh, Peterson has kind of established or, re-established the the two cultures issue right the wargaming and the science fiction cultures and so there's this passage that reads both cultures felt this tension and neither came to dnd with an easy resolution for it the, this tension being the the gm issue uh, precisely where to situate player participation on the continuum between these two extremes became one of the first and most important design design decisions for the games that followed dnd and it's, it struck me, like it strikes me now having this conversation and it struck me when I read that, how similar it reads in this, in this particular sort of 
limited way where we're talking about GMs, how much those two cultures read as something like the OSR and something like story games. You know what I mean? Um, and it became even more apparent when he went on to talk about the Flash Gordon RPG, which I thought was fascinating. Do, do y'all remember that part? I not off the top of my head, but so there's this part on for it starts on page 123. It run, runs from like 123 to 126, where he's talking about the Flash Gordon RPG. And interestingly, fun fact: Flash Gordon RPG 1977 is ostensibly the first licensed RPG. So that's pretty cool. Um, but what, what it does is um, it doesn't it doesn't give you like a world, right? Because this is inside of the, dis- the discussion of GM as world builder. Um, and that is not what the Flash Gordon RPG is doing. It gives you a like one scenario and a map of that scenario. And it just, it reads very story games to me. There's this like idea and top secret, an early uh, draft of top secret had a very similar thing where you, you as the GM would have a, basically a map of the story beats that the party would move through. And you could reference the book to see sort of what to do at each story beat. And so it was very much this, um, we're dealing with story and genre emulation very directly, very early on in RPGs, and it, it blew me away. But this is definitely, to my to my mind, and I think the book agrees with me generally, is coming out of the sort of science fiction culture of things, which is very concerned with story and genre emulation, and less, less out of the war games thing. But what, what, what it ends up at is this Flash Gordon RPG, and to a lesser extent, Top Secret, almost eliminate the need for a GM, like almost that the GM is kind of, I don't want to say reduced. That sounds too judgmental, but the GM is kind of relegated to referencing the book, like ask the players what they do, reference the book to see what to say next. Um, the, the quote I actually pulled says the referee's creative contribution to a role-playing game here is unrelated to building a world or even determining the flow of events, but must instead lie in more intangible aspects of how the dialogue is presented, Um, which is, yeah, it was just really, it was interesting to me. I feel why I brought this up. It It was interesting to me as a place where we get this like two cultures thing that still exists and existed before and probably will always exist and seems really central to what RPGs are. I'm just chewing over that like, oh God. (laughs) <laughs> it's like <laughs> why haven't we evolved <laughs> I mean this is a question that's been around since before we were born oh 100% I mean I think we've mentioned this before like mm-hmm. it bears repeating <laughs> Just, yeah. oh no it's interesting because like this is the section of the book that is very much talking about the science fiction community at the time that culture which to me looks a lot like current story games culture. And then there's this other section where they're talking about story, but from a war games perspective, like from that sort of proto OSR kind of side of things. And they still talk about story. Um, I, I've forgotten the name now. Of course I didn't pull a quote for this one, um, but they, they still talk about story, but it's 
they use the word um, emergent a lot with story and they make it very clear that story is something that happens after a lot of play, like a, a long campaign, when you look back, like it's a retroactive kind of story. Um, which is very different from this Flash Gordon top secret story games thing where it's very much planned, like the story is planned. And so it's just, I don't know, it's its amazing how one-to-one the comparison is. I mean, if we were to look at the book, so if you ever get the book on page 20, 127, there is, yeah, a schematic design or di- a schematic diagram of a game plan. And it's yeah, basic- that's, from, uh, that's from Top Secret. Yeah, it's from, from an early draft of Top Secret. And it basically looks like, what do you call that? A decision tree. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of like, oh my god. Like, on one hand, it's almost dramaturgical. Because the, it, the scene breakdowns are so clear. And there's like a what if, you know, there's a what if, if then kind of approach to it. But I don't think I could. I don't think I could do it that way. To be honest, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's almost I. I do agree in the whole idea that you know it's like story became an afterthought. Like because you've been making the story with your plays the entire time, you've never had your own narrative to begin with, which then raises this question. I think because I don't know what the story is always going to be because I'm reacting to player like input all the time depending on the cap you're on i would either be a great gm or a terrible one (laughs) yeah yeah you know i was flipping to try and find something and found a bit that highlights this tension and a lot of what we've been covering in that oh man let's just evoke all of the things that just cause terrible feelings alignment and also whether or not a GM should forcibly change a player's alignment or their character's alignment. If a player insistently justifies things via alignment while performing an alignment other than the one that is on their character sheet. A classic. Oh my gosh. I mean, they did try in AD and D to penalize that, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Wasn't I know it was rule? in three. I, I played enough three that it was definitely in there. But I know the rule in second ed was that if you changed alignment for any reason, like outside of a curse, like you, you, you there was that like helm of changing alignment, right? Um, yeah. There was that magical doohickey. But if you did it because of your own like lack of role playing, it would take double the amount of XP to reach levels. If yeah. I remember, that was the rule before, right? Something like that. It's. I mean, it's the same way that, like, I think there's also a bunch of caveats about if, like, for narrative reasons, a player wants to go through an alignment change that, like, you know, an earned alignment change doesn't necessarily entail any penalty. But, like, I couldn't remember that off the top of my head because I'll be honest, I have not read the rules to any edition of D&D in the last year. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like all of the all of the versions of very old D&D um, say any like BX clones or OD&D clones and then of course those games themselves are pretty blasé about alignment. <laughs> like it didn't really become a thing until money, which I, I have a lot of I have a lot of talk a lot of thoughts about uh when he AD&D first edition but 
Yeah, but that that also begs the question, like because because it depends on the the DM to enforce the rules as well. So even if it's ostensibly written into the game, the game would change depending on your GM, right? So like once again, we're we're like <laughs> the tension shows itself. Like, what are you actually playing when it's in the hands <laughs> outside of the authors? You know, and then we're just kind of like, oh crap. This is a problem. <laughs> this is a problem which shouldn't be a problem, but it becomes a problem. I don't know why. I think it's a problem because people have so much ownership over something they don't know what they own. Like we we have so much ownership over gaming, but I don't think any one of us could truly and properly define what gaming is. I'm so not original today. <laughs> it's like I'm just like reinforcing my old beliefs. It just might be a bad thing. <laughs> no, I it, I think it's it's valuable to look at something like this that is talking about ancient, ancient shit and realize that like, yeah, this is all of stuff, all of the stuff that we've fought for. Have, everybody has had to fight for, you know what I mean? It's like every generation has to invent this shit for themselves for whatever reason, as silly as that is. No, I refuse. No, <laughs> No, I, I refuse. I think we should learn from the past. I think if this shit's happened before, why reinvent the wheel? Like, I mean, like ideally, definitely. It's yeah, like, but that's why? The, the, the cycle that we're in is... I just want to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, why? Fun in RPGs? Yoda, I mean... This is a dramatic art. I'm doing like vaudeville hand gestures when I say that to make it funny, but I realize I don't really oh modulate my, my voice much, so that this is just absolutely deadpan. Um, it's just, it's just like, it's like, why can't we be happy? Because we need to write rules to play the game, and here's someone in charge. I'll go, go, and I'm like, ah. Right? Which, I guess, you know, it brings us to now. And maybe that's why there's so much resistance in design over these inherited, like, structures that we have. Well, you know? a lot of design is vestigial organs. Like You're going to have to explain that, Fiona, because now I'm thinking of myself, like, having a tail, which I can't use anymore. Well, well yeah, that's okay, like alignment, well, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, alignment... Um, I would argue, like, to some degree, like, the fact that carry weight still exists in 5e is meaningless. Yeah. Like, there is no real tracking of your gear that you carry in a meaningful way because you're basically anime characters, and that's fine, right? Let me be clear, talking to someone who likes Grognardi games, like, I don't think it's wrong. I think that they're just is no reason to bother with like weight stuff because it's like also with the way that bonuses work now, it's like you could possibly get a low strength character into plate mail. Like legitimately like this is just, it, it's just vestigial. And even um, like uh, rations, ability, scores, uh, ability scores are fairly vestigial at this point. Like it's really just the bonus that you need. Like you could just not write the score on your sheet for the most part. People hate ability score damage and like ability score drain. So like 
Yeah, oh, yeah, changing an ability easy. score upsets people, like, more than anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, permanent minus one to your non-dominant stat. You know, it's like, people playing a fighter with a, like, intelligence where nothing changed overall in their character sheet, you know, where it's like, you went from 11 to 10 intelligence. Like, <laughs> no bonuses were changed. Nothing changed. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, like, that is the most horrible form of damage. <laughs> yeah, 5e is an especially interesting case for this kind of thing, because, like, D&D itself has been at least, like, I know there's been at least five editions, but I'd say it's been at least three different games. <laughs> you know what I mean? Three yeah. or four yeah. different but games. But, you know, what, what I think makes the design vestigial is actually, I think, the result of the watering down of the role of the GM as enforcer of the rules. Mm. Because I think those would not be this, like those would not be vestigial if, if those things were always enforced as bad in practice, but because no one really counts, say wait, it becomes meaningless. Right. And that means that people haven't been doing it. So in a way we are look, looking at like an indirect offshoot, of what it means for a DM not to lo- to no longer be a rules hound, though yeah. though one could just as easily say it's becoming easier again because of digitization. Because if you look at these apps, they put in the rules, and suddenly you're like, "I'm trying to add this armor or this thing in my backpack. Why can't it add?" And then it's because you have a computer that actually says, "Boom, you're o- you're over encumbered." And I, you know, like maybe it's a technological thing that we're facing now. If you need technology to do something, then why have a GM? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, you know, I I think of that also with, right, like, the number of games that have, like, long conversations despite being, like, extremely inside baseball and not onboarding people to games, really... Like, you know, that bother to explain, like, what is a role-playing game or, like, what is the basic concept of, like, consent Mm. or, like, you know, discussing content warnings in a game where the content warnings coming up would be because player and referee directed towards them, you know, more so than anything else. And I'm not... To be clear, because I know people always take me as saying the worst possible fucking version of whatever I said, um, you know, what I mean by this is I don't think it's necessary because the audience already knows this, right? It's not that I think people are wrong to do this or that they're bad people. It's just one of those things of sometimes you can more effectively communicate things by not having a stock phrase put in but you know that's neither here nor there i think this has become a reflective episode in the sense that we still don't know what the role of the gm is other than the fact that the role of the gm seems to be based on what we've read whatever your group says the role of the gm is and we're all better off accepting that sooner rather than later yeah and i think ultimately that's a good thing? I'm going to put a question mark on good, but I think it's a good thing. <laughs> you know? And episode. I, I, <laughs> no, I, 
I think that it, amount of flexibility is is a is a boon. I think for RPGs as a category, as a form. Yeah, it's it's one of those things of I think a lot about how people just don't have a great language for discussing expectations or what they actually want to do to the point that like, you know, there's a difficulty at articulating things. Like I don't care about perfect fealty to the rules. I care about everyone like showing up, you know, is sometimes a more important conversation than anything else. I mean, on that note, on that yeah, we note. can we can yeah. the spookiest moving. episode, the one where we don't go really long. Well, yeah. it is past forty five minutes, and we're still following our rule, right? Which is forty five uh, minutes, forty five minute minimum. I did miss the two of you. I gotta say, I miss y'all. We should just do a non episode hangout at some point yeah, <laughs> and actually we talk. Do we should. <laughs> we should. We do chat in our work chat or on a, in our podcast Discord chat a lot. Oh my god, work chat? Work you, chat? I used I put work in scare quotes, but you couldn't see it. Oh, this is the thing okay. with all of us hand gesturing. I have made the <laughs> joke suggestion that we should become whatever that thing is where you have an avatar that's animated and just make these <laughs> into YouTube videos. Yeah, just make a VTube um, edition do, um, of you, this. You do understand if we ever become gas vloggers, <laughs> streamers, we are we are now careening towards that fate that we laughed on ourselves as, which is we're going to be influencers, Fiona. Never. No. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's I would. I don't want to know how and what we're actually influencing people to, but we're going to become influencers. <laughs> So there's this Russian short story I read called Yellow Coal that was about, like, you know, the concept of basically um, a sci-fi country discovers, like, a resource where you can just make people, like, enraged enough, frequently enough, that they basically exude an energy that certain engines can be powered by. So basically the state exists to design everything to be super irritating. Like all the buses are run on this. So they constantly fuck up just so that you're angry enough that they'll work. Wait, so I you're basically that. describing Monsters Inc. powered by angst. <laughs> um, so rather than frightening children for energy or making them laugh for energy, it's let's piss off society for power. Yes. Um, and then there's a movement of people who practice empathy in spite of this, that which triggers a number of problems because, you know, empathy maybe is um, damaging to the ability to power things off of people's bottled up frustration and hatred. And our infrastructure collapses. I love it. Wow. Empathy is enervating. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, I think I it's a really good short story. <laughs> it's, a good story. it's a good short story. I'm just, I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> like, very good. I do want to shout out our excellent Twitter account. It is at KindTrying. K-I-N-D-T-R-Y-N-G. KindTrying. Yes. Go and follow it, us. And we inc- only <laughs> post when there's a new episode. <laughs> in- yes, because increasingly we are becoming... Like, you know, we are truly owning up to our being the three furies slash fates slash witches slash coven because we're getting harder and harder to find. Oh, yeah. 
I just Look. renewed to my whole Twitter account a few days ago, and it's been yep. great. It's been great. I've I've taken up oil painting. No, have actually, you really? No, not really. I did. I have been doing. I have been drawing more, but <laughs> but I didn't actually take up oil paints. I'm still on yeah. Twitter, but please don't follow me unless I've actually met you in real life. Yeah, but go follow yeah. Kind Trying. I did at re- earlier today. I requested people ask us questions that we could answer in like a mailbag segment at the end of the episode. Um, so let's see if we got any. Oh, <laughs> look, they're all jokes. Um, so oh, that, let's go through them. Let's do it. Okay, well, there's two. Uh, one of them is from the illustrious Sean McCoy, who asks. What's so cool about kindness? And to that, I respond, I never said kindness was cool. I've never uh, made that claim. Kindness is cringe, but you should do it anyway. Yeah, that's probably true. Like being sincere is actually uncomfortable to other people, or at least I experience it as discomforting. And that's why I'm always being sarcastic. But sure, kindness is a thing you should try, even if it's unpleasant. <laughs> and then, and then, someone named Luke Gear Gearing, I think it's pronounced Gearing, asks: Has anyone really been far, even as decided to use, even go want to do look more like? Yes. Um, to which I responded: <laughs> Why do they call it oven when you oven the cold food out hot to eat the food? Um, which is a meme that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, but yeah. Those were the two questions we got. So hopefully next time the questions will be better is why I bring this up. You know what? Both of our questions were asked by any award winners. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, not quality, but quality, you know? Uh, yeah. um, I, but just saying, you don't on need our to, be to be any award winning podcast. This is not going to be an any award winning podcast. Any minute now. Could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine if that happened? <laughs> I think we should submit this. I I have to run for real though, but yeah. I I also think that we should totally submit this because I want Emmy's judges to listen to this fucking podcast. That's it. We're feeling. campaigning starting right now. Everyone is has to vote for us for the Emmys. Everyone, you need to try to be kind and <laughs> are ending this episode with the start of a campaign. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Oh, TTBK any, for an any. Thank you. Any's to be kind. Any Five be- seasons in a movie. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> We're going to hell.